The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at TNTradio.live. Alex Zaharoff-Royt and Talkin' Tech on today's News Talk TNT. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Talking Tech with Alex Zaharov-Royt. It's been a big tech in week, a big week in tech. It always has and always will be. Now, we've had the huge Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. Now, besides appearing with Chris Smith for Cyber Wednesday, after the 4.30 p.m. news headlines in Australia, 3 to 5 p.m., I'm also the editor of techadvice.life. And this week, I spoke with legendary Australian technology journalist, Chris Griffith, who's been a guest on this show as well. Now, Chris was at Mobile World Congress, and he joined me for a 40-minute look at the big stories from MWC, which you can watch at techadvice.life. But he, we spoke about Google, OpenAI, DeepMind, and other AI topics, including the alarming use of water required to cool down all the servers that are running AI systems. Apparently, if you ask AI a few questions, it'll use about 600 mils of water, which is about like a, a bottle of water. So uh, there's a bit of an issue there. We also just discussed developments in Li-Fi. Now that's like Wi-Fi, but it's using light. And apparently the military has been using this for some years because uh, it doesn't go through walls. It can't easily be hacked. And there was some commercialization of that technology, which can be used to send signals to different devices in, in a room or in a building where it can be repeated, but it, it can't leak through walls like Wi-Fi can. ZTE, which is a manufacturer of uh, smartphones and tablets in Australia, our big telco called Telstra often rebadges their phones under its own brand name. And they had a sort of a back to the future tablet screen, which was 3D, a bit like those Nintendo DS devices in the first decade of the uh, of the 2000s. Uh, 3D sort of comes and goes uh, and seems to be back. There was also a clicks it was called Clicks, and it was a BlackBerry-style keyboard for your iPhone. So what happens is that you can slide the phone, your iPhone 14 uh, Pro Max or Pro or 15 Pro and Pro Max into this keyboard, and then you can type away. And there are people that say that they could touch, well, they could type, thumb type, without looking at the keys, something that's a bit harder to do when you've got to tap on a glass screen and you can't feel anything. I've actually been able to sort of type a few times on the glass screen, sort of knowing where things are or, or swiping with my fingers. But if you start in the wrong spot, <laughs> autocorrect can't fix that. Now, there was also Len Lenovo's easily repairable and upgradable notebook, something that uh, is the opposite of what we've seen with many of the smart devices we have today, which are certainly not very easily repairable at all, even though the people at ifixit.com uh, who have been pushing to uh, you know, rank how repairable devices are, how easy they are to pull apart and put back together again. And they've actually been doing work with various companies, including HMD, the, the home of Nokia phones, to make phones much easier to replace and repair. You know, you can replace the screen yourself or the battery yourself. And uh, we, there seems to be a trend towards that, you know, moving back towards that because people want to be able to upgrade the processor or the graphics card or the RAM or easily replace the keyboard or a screen without having to, you know, throw away a perfectly good notebook and sort of use the chassis for several generations. And we do seem to be moving back towards that. There was also a laptop with a transparent screen. So when the screen is up, you can actually see all the way through it. Now, I'm not sure what that's going to do for privacy when you're typing away and people can see, <laughs> albeit back to front, what it is that you are, are typing, but it certainly looks very cool. And uh, it's something we're going to see more and more of. That sci-fi thing has uh, gone from just being something written about and displayed in TV shows and
and movies. You'll see them uh, in the Starbucks and other cafes over the next couple of years. There were also a whole stack of incredible satellite developments uh, aimed around making phone calls, uh, getting text messages, not just text messages that are for emergency purposes like with Apple's iPhones, but just regular text messages, and also receiving data and making video calls from an unmodified smartphone. And this is becoming a true reality. Optus in Australia and Lenovo uh, and um, Telstra in Australia, as well as Verizon in the States. So a lot of companies are doing this. Even Elon Musk earlier this week tweeted or posted that he was uh, sending this this X post, this tweet, from an unmodified phone straight to a Starlink satellite in space. Uh, there was also the issue of HMD Global, the company uh, behind uh, the resurgence of Nokia smartphones, doing a deal with Mattel to release a Barbie flip phone. Now, uh, obviously, that's going to be a pink phone that opens up, and we we, we do see the, the flip phones from, from Samsung, but these particular flip phones are uh, full Android devices. The talk of the Barbie Android flip phone was one that would be a sort of a feature phone, like a semi-dumb phone, which would be using the Kai, K-A-I-O-S, which Nokia uses on, or HMD uses on its uh, sort of resurgent uh, candy bar Nokia phones that have been on the market for a couple of years. And they even do have a, a flip phone like the original flip phones with the buttons were at the bottom, screen was at the top. And these sort of semi-smart operating systems uh, do have, you know, Gmail, they've got access to Google Maps, they have access to WhatsApp. So there's a few apps on there, a few of that modern apps that we take for granted. But the supposed benefits of these phones is that you don't get the full smartphone experience. Fewer notifications, fewer apps, fewer distractions. But personally, I wonder whether this is truly the right approach. Yep, smartphones have all those you know advanced features, but you can actually turn a lot of them off. And modern smartphones have focus modes where you can disable apps, eliminate notifications. Samsung phones even have an easy phone mode that can remove anything you want. Any of the apps just have like a kids mode or a simple mode for uh, you know people like your grandparents, for example, who don't want all the rest of that stuff. So personally, I think it's a, it's a bit of an insult to women, if you ask me, to just bring out a, a pink flip phone that doesn't allow you to do all the cool things that you can do on a traditional iPhone or Android. And uh, the phone's meant to come in other pastel colors too from the Barbie universe. So look, if they do have a, a traditional basic flip phone. I certainly hope that they have one that has the full Android experience as well. There was also the uh, Galaxy Ring from Samsung. This is a ring that fits onto your finger. It, you know, you, you can wear it to, to bed more easily than having a watch or a fitness band. Uh, it's supposed to have nine days of battery life, be waterproof, do your ECG, uh, do your blood oxygenation, look at your heartbeat, uh, track your sleep, uh, track your fitness in a way that can be more sort of intimate, intimate and more uh, reliable than and a watch which where the band can sort of move across. So that is meant to come in the second half of the year. Whether it will have the full nine days of battery life is yet to be seen if all the features are turned on. Apple is also meant to be working on one of these rings. So uh, it looks like that's going to be the, the ring will be the next big thing. So uh, we, we will uh, wait and see on that front. But uh, lots of great stuff. If you want to see that video interview, please go ahead and look. Just type MWC 2024 into Google News or onto X. And there's tons of posts, tons of videos, lots of information to be found. Now, look, it's now time to introduce and welcome my very first guest for tonight, Xavier Orr. He is the CEO and co-founder of Advanced Navigation, the world's most determined innovator in AI robotics and navigations technologies. Now, Xavier, we last spoke on video in 2022 when you were launching the uh, Hydrus underwater drone. Thank you for joining me again and welcome to TNT. 
Great to be here, Alex. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. Now, as I said, when we last spoke, you were launching Hydrus. That's an autonomous drone that makes underwater surveying easy and affordable. And you just joined forces uh, with a company called uh, Space Machines to launch a satellite called Optimus on board a SpaceX rocket. Uh, but before we go there in any detail, can you please give us a bit of an overview or a brief overview of advanced navigation in 2024, a couple of years since we last spoke? And I think he's frozen. <laughs> well, we're just going to see if we can get uh, Xavier back there. But um, uh, the uh, the satellite, and Xavier will tell us this in a moment, but it's uh, from a company called um, Space Machines, and it's an Australian startup, which is uh, pretty cool. They're launching this sometime this month into space, and this particular satellite will uh, have the advanced navigation system, which hopefully we'll have uh, Xavier telling us about very shortly, uh, which um, it, it, it allows the navigation in space to jump between different orbits. Now, that's pretty important because uh, there, are, there are already 8,700 satellites in space. Uh, Xavier, are you back? Looks like you're back. No, it's still still spritzing out a bit there. I'll yeah, no worries. We're just going to try Xavier on the phone. But, uh, yeah, this, this particular uh, satellite can jump between orbits. There's 8,700 satellites in space. And the uh, Swinburne University is expecting there to be a 400% increase in satellites, which is pretty incredible. Now, um, Xavier, are you back there? You seem to be – I think we're trying to call you on the uh, phone. If your phone's on – Yes, I can, uh, okay. I can hear you now. All, all right. Okay. Well, look, tell us about uh, advanced navigation in – 2024 and what you're doing in, in brief. Yeah, so the um, the technology that we developed is called uh, digital fiber optic gyroscope technology. Um, and that uh, that technology has been deployed um, across land vehicles, aerospace and marine applications um, underwater. Um, and so that's a widely deployed product, but we haven't yet done a space um a space grade version of that technology so um what we have done is produced um a special space rated version of it which we call just, boreas can, can x90 can i just quickly ask you can, um, can you just you turn your do some... i was just ask can you turn your video off for a moment sure. because uh we it's interfering with the bandwidth and we'll hear you more clearly but sorry keep please keep going yeah sure so um yeah we've we've produced a space grade version of our Boreas defog technology, and that uh, to to do that basically, there's two um, two challenges you have to address, and that's radiation and the vacuum of space. Um, so yeah, a fair bit of work goes on in um, in the design there to to um, make the adjust the product for space. Um, and that, so that um, that's going up in the space machines launch um, in the coming days. And um, it, it gives the um, it gives the satellite enhanced capabilities in terms of navigation and guidance. Um, so I think I caught a bit of uh, you know a bit of your latest uh, mention where you were talking about um, about uh, orbit jumps and um, and docking. And so these are two maneuvers that are quite challenging in space. Um, so uh, our, our technology with the with the superior accuracy that it provides um, compared to the older systems that um, would have normally been used for this application allows them to have really precise uh, guidance to to come up to other satellites and dock with them. 
Um, yeah. So docking is a very risky manoeuvre um, because if you come in too hot, you know, you can you can damage the other satellite or damage your own satellite. So, um, you know, it's really critical to have the best uh, navigation and guidance for that manoeuvre. Sure, sure. Um, well, I mean, we saw we saw in the movie Gravity with uh, George Clooney and Sandra Bullock what happens when uh, a rogue satellite gets shot by a foreign country and it smashes into the space station and into, uh, you know, the cause of massive chaos. I mean, those things are travelling at uh, thousands of kilometres per hour. And and the um, this particular Optimus satellite is able to uh, refuel and repair and manoeuvre, I mean, it's, it can repair the satellite. That's that's the stuff of science fiction. Yeah, it's very interesting. So it's like a moving service station um, can come up and uh, dock with other satellites and then uh, service yeah. them, you know, bring them back from the dead. And that's a particularly um, big problem to address. As we've seen, um, you know, the number of satellites in space grow dramatically over the last five years. Um, so we've gone from 3,000 to 8,000 satellites mm. and we're expected to hit 50,000 by 2028. Yeah, so um, a massive jump. Yeah, huge jump. And of course, um, not all of those satellites are operational still. So there's a large number that have faults and need service and need fixing. Um, and rather than having to put a whole new satellite in space, if you can fix it where it is, you know, it's a huge advantage. And and how practical is it to fix a satellite in space? I mean, I've heard of satellites where the, the solar panels couldn't be deployed e properly because of some fault. Uh, you know, is it? do you think they really can fix these satellites in space or will they sort of be able to pull them into a future space shuttle and have, have uh, either robots or humans working on them in the in the docking bay of a, of a space shuttle, for example? Uh, I think there's like a there's a range of things that they will be able to fix, um, particularly if it's, you know, a power problem. Um, they have manipulators so they can go in there and, um, and like move things, rewire things. Um, but yeah, also if it is something like a solar panel that's, um, you know, in the wrong orientation, you know, they can adjust that with their manipulators um, to get it back into the right frame so that it's, uh, it's getting power. Yeah. Now, I, I know that uh, for US, our US audience, it's like AAA in space. For those in Australia, it's like NRMA or RACQ or RACV or RACT for those in Tasmania, for example, because I do a show down there. But uh, I don't know what the equivalent is in the UK. But yeah, the guys that come to you in the car, <laughs> they can now do that for satellites in space. Now, look, I know that advanced navigation does a lot with AI. It's part of the bedrock of the company. So what are your capabilities in AI neural networks and deep learning algorithms and look for the layperson how does this differ to what's running on chat gpt uh, on on grok on gemini on copilot perplexity ai ai etc yeah sure so i guess um yeah the ai that is behind advanced navigation was my university thesis in 2009 um and it was uh, it was basically um a new a neural network algorithm um alternative to a, a very widely used um algorithm that um you basically find it everywhere it's in your car it's in your house um everywhere where you see sensors generally do tend to find this algorithm so that um that research um uh, produced basically a neural network ai algorithm that um you know could you could achieve about a 10 times performance increase mm -hmm. um and that that gives you major advantages so um you know you have that big performance bump um, and you're able to have significant um, improvements in your sense of performance and navigation and all sorts of things like that. 
Now, back to the satellite for a moment. Is is this the first uh, satellite that can repair other satellites, or is it, is it the first one that we've uh, launched as Australia? Uh, it's Australia's first one, and it's definitely um, it's a new field. Um, there is definitely other companies working on this as well. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's definitely the first one from Australia. And uh, obviously these uh, satellites are using presumably ARM processors, the same sort of things we have on our smartphones, but just hardened for space. And they would have a lot of that AI chip, uh, you know, the brains, the AI co- you know, processors built in to uh, enable all of those advanced navigation facilities that uh, you are providing to the satellite. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, you have to have especially um, radiation-hardened CPUs. Uh, radiation can really upset CPUs in space and arm ones. And yeah, so yeah, you have special radiation-hardened CPUs and RAM and memory and everything like that that are uh, that you have to use. Um, but yeah, that is really where you will um, be running your AI um, on those. You generally have the, the co-processors that, uh, that are great at processing those neural networks. You do, you do wonder with all this hardening required of all this uh, technology, how the heck did we launch to the moon in 1969? I guess the technology was so much simpler back then, it could withstand it. And they probably were traveling so fast through space, they didn't really get time to get super radiated. But uh, these days, they spend so much longer in space. So it's uh, it's just it's an incredible thing. But look, how heavily is Australia's space industry regulated? You know, what are the key rules and regulations that players in this field should be aware of? Uh I'm not. I probably can't speak um, too much to the regulation, but I, I believe there's a there's like an international standard um, that uh, that most countries are trying to adhere to. Um, that's basically, uh, you know, it's I guess it's rules for space, you know, and not not leaving junk up there, trying to, um, you know, trying not to pollute up there, um, and and trying not to have, uh, you know, objects that could be dangerous. Well, look, let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back with you in a moment. I, I just want to say, if you've missed your favourite TNT radio show or interview, uh, simply listen or watch it when you want, wherever you want. Just visit episodes on the TNT radio website on Rumble, BitChute or Brighteon.com. We're also on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, Podbean, iHeart and TuneIn. Now, there is no reason to miss out on anything on today's News Talk TNT. See you TNT's after the break. Patrick Henningsen. So you see what's happening here. The White House is doing heavy spring cleaning, deep clean to expunge, to erase, to discredit. Believe it or not, even though this stuff has already been out, they're still trying to move to discredit uh, any talk or any evidence or anything related to the Hunter Biden laptop story and also any Biden corruption in Ukraine. So their hand is being forced uh, and they're not going to take this lying down. The White House certainly is not going to uh, capitulate to any of these allegations or charges. Um, the Republicans have been pushing forward, as everybody knows, with this House investigation, been getting very interesting traction. So now the deep state is moving into action to discredit any witnesses uh, and to write it all off as Russian disinformation. Sound familiar? Have we been here before? Of course we have. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT. 
a better business tip from TNT Radio. News Talk Radio listeners are some of the most active and involved listeners of any format. TNT Radio listeners rely on TNT Radio often as their primary source of information. They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. It's time to switch on today's News Talk Radio. Very entertaining. TNT. Thanks for joining me again on TNT Radio. This is Talking Tech with Alex Zaharov-Royt, and my guest is Xavier Orr, the CEO and co-founder of Advanced Navigation. Now, Xavier, we've got the uh, uh, the Boreas X90 navigation system that uh, your company is, is uh, responsible for creating. It's uh, being installed into the uh, space machine company's Optimus satellite, which is a, a cool name. Obviously, uh, it sounds like it's something to do with Optimus Prime and but probably nothing at all to do with um, SpaceX's, uh, or sorry, Tesla's Optimus robot. Uh, but uh, of course, it is going up on a SpaceX rocket. But tell us a bit, little bit more about your navigation system. You know, how does it actually help uh, do this performance precision satellite docking? Uh, how does it help orbital satellite vehicles perform the intricate maneuvers, such as the orbital jumps that we described earlier? Uh, yeah, so I, uh, our system gives the primary navigation um, for the satellite, uh, and then that can be used um, to guide a satellite through a manoeuvre. Um, so the flight computer will do things like the, the docking um, procedure um, where it will identify the location of another satellite um, and do an approach to that satellite and the dock and uh, I guess the um, the navigation output of the Boreas X90 is what it's using to do that. Uh, so the the improved performance of that um, that technology relative to what um, what is currently probably like the standard of, of what's used in satellites um, means that you have a big performance increase. Um, and so this just makes it much more reliable. And how long have you been working on this technology? I mean, what prompted you to get into creating these sort of, I mean, the company is called Advanced Navigation. I know you said you did your, uh, you know, your thesis on, on AI, but how did you get into this space and, and what made you decide to come up with, with this particular system for satellites? I mean, it's obviously very visionary. Mm, uh, well, so the thesis um, basically applies to sensors. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's the main thing it does is correcting errors from sensors. And, um, and I guess if you look at the most challenging application of sensors, um, one of those applications is inertial navigation. And so that's really where um, that neural network technology was applied. Uh, and that, that's really the basis for advanced navigation. So, and so yeah, we've kind of gone. Sorry, go on, go on. Uh, Gone from there to develop that technology and develop the, the default technology. Um, and then with, there's been a strong demand to have that technology in space. Um, so, yeah, then we've done the, the space grade version of it for space machines and then got a lot of interested parties uh, watching the space machines launch um, to look at using that Boreas technology. Uh, satellites and space launch vehicles. That would presumably be all the other major satellite companies that are out there. Yeah, that's correct. And I, I remember speaking to you, you've been working on this now for eight years. Uh, yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, these these deep tech um, ventures, they do, they do take a bit of time. Um, so, yeah, this particular technology um, that's behind the Boreas, uh, which we call Defog, uh, that was developed in collaboration with RMIT and ANU, um, and that 
he really um, has about, you know, 20 years um, worth of research that's gone into it. Now, when we last spoke in 2022, you had just launched the autonomous ocean-going drone Hydrus, and there was lots of talk about it uh, being used by all sorts of different companies. How has that been going over the past couple of years? Uh, Hydrus is uh, going really well. So um, we actually um, just recently did an upgrade to Hydrus to improve the AI capabilities. So what we found is, um, you know, there is an enormous interest um, for the, the AI capabilities of Hydrus underwater um, and its autonomous features. Um, so we, we've got some, um, you know, really cool things like um, identifying and um, counting marine life, um, you know, surveying oil pipes, surveying uh, internet cables underwater, um, and really all sorts of different infrastructure. Um, we even have uh, treasure hunters going down on shipwrecks with them. Um, so it, it has been uh, really successful. So, um, yeah, we've been continuously scaling up our, um, our manufacturing of that product and uh and also adding so we uh upgraded the ai coprocessor on it so that um so that it has a little much more uh much better capabilities of ai and uh i'm assuming that uh underwater is a much easier place to navigate than in space or both sort of equally as difficult uh actually like underwater is the most challenging because um the big problem we have underwater is radio waves um don't penetrate through the water so you're left without any kind of radio um which makes it quite challenging so yeah um, you're instead using sound and sonar systems um are basically what you're using there um to do to do navigation doing the inertials and and sonar technology so it is um it is definitely the more challenging application is underwater yeah well we certainly saw with the titan submersible that uh, they were having great difficulties in communicating uh, underwater so i mean yeah we've seen that happen in in real life i mean uh president nixon was making phone calls to the astronauts uh, from the oval office so clearly communicating yeah. with space is a lot easier than uh, than deep underground well look xavier i, I invite people to go to advancednavigation.com uh, you can also look up space machines on the internet as well and i wish you and space machines the best of success with this launch they're always a, a tricky time i mean sometimes these things explode and but hopefully this will be you know smooth sailing as it were and uh, look forward to uh, learning more about it in a future episode so, so thank you very much for your time. Great. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Now, TNT is a global independent news talk station that does what others say they what others only say they do. TNT is a live radio and TV broadcaster that simply tells the truth 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's part of the reason why I'm on the station, because I really believe in the ethos. No one in the world does what we do, crisscrossing the globe, providing credible news and opinion all day and all night. Now, in two and a half years, TNT has become a credible and exciting platform with brilliant hosts and staff. And I certainly do love watching a number of the other presenters on TNT. Somewhere in different time zones, but I'm loving all the presenters that I can see. Jason Alborn, Chris Smith, Dean Macken, and plenty others. Now, it's a critical time, and we must continue to call out the misinformation and propaganda from mainstream media and their powerful sponsors. And we are now appealing to our many friends and supporters around the world to go to tntradio.live and make a small donation to TNT while we seek the right investors to continue our important mission. I'll be back with Aaron Bugle from Sophos after the break. When I had my heart event close to four years ago, I was at the gym. 
thought I deserve a coffee and thought I'll top up with fuel, ordered a coffee. But while I was pumping fuel, I started to get chest pains. Then it got worse and worse and worse. So then I was leaning on the counter thinking, yeah, something's not quite right. So then I went to wait for the coffee and that's when it really, really hit. And Joy just, you know, mouthed, do you need an ambulance? And I remember nodding. I wasn't even thinking about a heart attack. I just thought something is seriously wrong with me here. So when the cardiologist came to see me, she informed me that I'd had what they call a widow-maker heart attack. Bit of a shock when someone says, you know, you nearly died. <laughs> Everybody should be aware of all the symptoms of a heart attack that women can have that aren't typical of the shoulder pain, the right arm pain. I go to the gym, I do yoga, Pilates, I swim, I go on bike rides, and yet I still had a heart attack. You just don't know it could be you. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Thank you for joining me on Talking Tech with Alex Zaharov-Royt. Now it's time to introduce Aaron Bugle. He's the Field Chief Technology Officer for Australia and New Zealand for global cybersecurity firm Sophos. Welcome to the program and thanks for joining me on TNT. Hey, thanks for having me, Alex. I'm uh, really excited to be here, mate. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. Now, Aaron, before we get onto the new report from Sophos about uh, cybersecurity and mental health and wellness, can you please give me a quick refresher on Sophos in 2024? Yeah, okay. We, I mean, we're still going to be looking out for our customers, making sure that from a you know cyber resiliency standpoint that we can provide them products and services to defend against threats, whatever they may be, new threats, old threats, and everywhere in between. Um, but a lot of our, our push for this year is to, I mean, a lot of it, what comes out of this report and some of the other insights that we've gained from talking with our customers is to really help optimize what our customers are doing. We understand they've got heaps of tools, lots of noise coming at them from a variety of different sources, like a little resource. So we want to make sure that, you know, through the services that we provide, um, regardless if it's Sophos Technologies providing protection for their environment, we can ensure that we can take some of that burden off them, optimise what they do have, give them some time back to focus on growing their business. Now, uh, Sophos has just launched the latest edition of its Future of Cybersecurity in Asia Pacific and Japan report. And unlike previous editions, which examined cybersecurity issues confronting businesses uh, such as uh, uh, you know, ransomware and viruses and patch management, this one specifically focuses on mental health and wellness. So why the change in focus and why is mental wellness so important in 2024? Yeah, no, it's, it was an interesting sort of direction to take the report. But, you know, where, yeah, as you said, we would normally be looking at, you know, MITRE TTPs and ransomware and threat actors and how they get in and laterally move and how they, you know, exfiltrate data, which is still quite important. Um, mm. It was the 85% of the respondents in this report when we started, you know, speaking to people about, you know, which way should we go, that when we mentioned sort of like the burnout and the fatigue angle, a lot of people are quick to jump out and say, yeah, we're, we're noticing that in our organization with some of our employees. And when we sort of collated the numbers and saw this like 85% of organizations have sort of witnessed some form of fatigue or burnout in their staff, it was like, whoa, this is, this is pretty huge, right? This needs a little bit more attention and some focus. So, I mean, a little surprised that it was that, that bad um, everywhere. Not shocked given that, you know, after we've gone through a lot of the research, the reasons are pretty apparent why this is such a big issue at the moment. 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's very alarming news. I mean, it's the culmination of uh, years of ever-increasing attacks across as many threat vectors as possible, now added by AI to boot. And, you know, the constant uh, feeling of being under attack, you can never switch off uh, when you're in the cybersecurity role because you don't know if that phone call at three in the morning is about to tell you that the, you know, the, all the company's data has been stolen, everything's been wiped out, and it's your job to get up and go and fix it. And it, that could take some time. But how has this report changed the way that Sophos itself does business and the environment that you give businesses globally yeah it's a, it's an interesting one because like it's a bit of a chicken and the egg type of of, of situation where it's sort of like well hang on is the report changing the way in which we view things or is it just because the way in which we decided to do things earlier on that has really exposed this as a, as a problem? And I'd like to think, you know, back a few years ago when we started to sort of really pioneer the managed detection response space and offer like managed services and our products as a result of them, because so we knew how to run our products. We understood that people had, you know, 10, 20, 30 to security tools in their environments, just throwing virtually noise at them mm. and through managing all and ingesting all this information, our own, you know, crack team of SOC experts looking at this going, this is a bucket load of data. And then speaking to the customs they're protecting. And when we meet with them, they've got one person, IT yeah. person that's yeah. dedicated to also covering off cybersecurity. It's like, no, 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 not one person can do this on their own, right? So. This was pretty apparent to us, you know, through our own, you know, service offering when we saw how much noise we wanted to really trim out from a cyber person's day to day that we sort of discovered, actually, we're exposing like a, a lot of what's problematic in the industry at the moment, which is, you know, a lot of people are getting stressed. They're mm -hmm. anxious. They're self-doubting themselves because the sheer volume of responsibility that's falling on their shoulders and there's no assistance. So, yeah, it's definitely helped us, this report, to shift the way in which we have conversations with organisations around managing cybersecurity and really looking at cybersecurity as a, a catch-all word, but really starting to properly set expectations about how we deal and govern with, with cybersecurity risk and so forth, so we don't have these problems with burnout and fatigue, which lead to all sorts of issues. Well, one of the alarming issues in the report was that human error is a big cause of these cybersecurity issues. So you can have all the tools in the world, but if you've misconfigured something, uh, which is apparently one of the things that was behind one of the, uh, the the Optus breach from a couple of years ago, before they had the big uh, meltdown uh, last year where their network was down for hours. But we also had the minister, uh, Claire O'Neill, responsible for this, the Australian federal government minister responsible for cybersecurity, uh, talking about how you know they're really going to start clamping down on boards uh, mm -hmm. and making them personally liable for these sort of, um, you know, security breaches, which is only going to put even more pressure on, which which makes, uh, you know, looking after the mental wellness uh, of your staff that much more important because otherwise they'll leave. There were pre-pandemic reports that, um, you know, chief information security officers were leaving. And this is pre-pandemic. I mean, the during mm. COVID, the uh, attacks were worse, but people were leaving their position within 24 months to become like a dog walker because it was so much less stressful. So what impact does human error in 2024 now have? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a scenario that we could we could we could take days to discuss. And quite frankly, this is this is going to be a big thing for me moving forward is to really sit down and understand this sort of an impact with organisations at the various levels from from definitely boards and executive committees right on through to the the IT managers, the team leaders, the people that are dedicated to cyber and the and the coal face people as I like I tend to call them as well. But just just one little thing that I just want to touch on. I get the human error um, aspect in it, and sometimes it can be classed as a mistake, but 
I really, I feel it's unfair. And just sort of taking that, that alternative approach to sort of like looking at what fatigue can cause in an organization and saying that it's a human error. Um, I just don't think it's fair to the individual that's mm. under this immense burden and load being the responsible one. They've been deputized by those executive committees to fix cyber, no risk. And, and they're like, yeah. so how do I do this? Right. So yeah, all that that burden and load, it's going to cause them to slow down. It's going to cause them to sort of like look at things maybe in, in a different context because they're, they're trying to deal with things coming at them left, right and centre. So if they would naturally see something happening over here very quickly, but they don't because they were focusing over there, by the turn they, time they turn their head, that, that thing has already progressed from a minor incident to a big issue, maybe mm -hmm. even a breach. And that's where they sort of get, you know, pegged for it, which I, I don't think is fair. But you're right. It's sort of like that whole approach to setting expectations with executive committees and the board to sort of suggest, well, what what sort of risk are you willing to take? And really empowering those team leaders and those, those cyber people, IT managers in organisations and give them the confidence that they can challenge back to the boards to say, you know what you're asking is actually not possible because we don't have the right people. Maybe we don't have the right tools or the technology, sorry, the, the processes that we have aren't, aren't refined. So those people, process and technologies, they've got a, a very close symbiotic relationship. And if they're imbalanced, that throws the whole thing off. And then when you mismatch the expectation from, you know, a governance and risk perspective that the board assumes is going to be, you know, taken care of, mm. that's when things can go horribly sideways. Yeah. Well, and look, that's why the board's being put on notice that they really, I mean, it used to be the case that a company had an internet department, uh, but then the company, the whole company was an internet company. Companies nowadays have a cybersecurity department, but the whole company needs to be on board with, you know, being a cybersecurity company, whether they want to or not, otherwise they'll be out of business. And when I was saying human error, I wasn't thinking of the negligence point of view, but from the point of view you were talking about where there's just so much happening that errors are happening because the people can't cope. Now, look, I've got the uh, article uh, that has the report on my website, techadvice.life, right at the top. People can't miss it. But And we've got plenty of other things to talk about. But are there a couple of other findings, headline findings, that you want to quickly mention that we should know about? Yeah. So the, 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 there's a few main contributing factors to, to cyber burnout, right? And, and and cyber burnout, you know, it's it's the it's the mental exhaustion, the physical exhaustion, the emotional exhaustion of an individual that just it, it causes them to manifest different problems, right? So it could be, you know, things like they feel, uh, you know, inferior in their job, or maybe they develop some yeah. sense of apathy and they start to remove. So I think that the, the mental health, the mental impact on the individual and the teams of individuals, that's that's a big finding in the report. But really the the exposure to those lack of resources that that leads to it. So just the lack of, as I said, you know, the right processes, the right tech, the right people in business, they're big things. Um, the routine monotony that people face. And the the routine monotony I've I've found quite interesting with talking to a few individuals out there. You know, we say lack of resources and we say we need cyber people. And I think all organizations, you know, skill shortage, it's it's talked by, you know, the honorable, you know, Claire yeah. and about skills, lack of skills, resources, et cetera. But we cast the net far and wide saying we need people in cyber. And somebody goes, I want to be in cyber. I'm going to go and, and grab that job. And we get them, we sit them down, we put them in front of a terminal inside the SOC and say, right, you're a detection engineer, find badness and stop it before it gets a hold of us. And they go, I didn't sign up for this. I don't, I don't like doing this. This is this is boring. I'd prefer to write policies around governance and risk. So yeah. I understand we're desperate for people and get them in when you can. 
but definitely when you're getting those new people in, foster what they're interested in, understand what they want to do, where they want to go in, in with their career, and put them in somewhere that they'll be able to flourish and, and really enjoy and be passionate about what they do. But you've already mentioned another big thing was the pressure from the boards, the mismatch and expectation, the assumptions that they sometimes make because they don't speak the same language that people on the coalface and the team leaders are doing. And they're not empowered enough to sort of challenge those people of authority because they're, they're a little bit nervous that they might lose their job. So I think that whole governance of risk and, you know, case in point, the National Institute of Standards and Technology released their V2 of the cybersecurity framework, which really does bring along a big governance function and some basic questions for organisations to answer. You know, you said it before, cybersecurity is a community, it's a communal um, sport in an organisation. Mm. Everyone's got to be involved from the top down. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the one other thing that we really want to highlight from the report is hackers going to hack. There are always going to be threat actors out there. I don't think nothing that we can do will influence whether or not somebody is going to pick up a tool or an internet connection and not use it offensively if they've got the opportunity to make an easy dollar because that's all they can do wherever they might be geographically located then we've got to expect that they are going to you know try to take advantage of somebody who might not have the best security practices they've yeah. got to get it right one percent of the time we as defenders have got to get it right 100 percent of the time Exactly. Now, you mentioned hackers going to hack, and look, if it was so easy to just shake it off, shake it off like Taylor Swift, we wouldn't be having any of these problems. But it's not. People are having real issues. And also, just to let people know who don't know some of the lingo, a SOC, an SOC, is a security operations centre. It's like the nerve centre for a business's cybersecurity operations, so they know what's going on in the business, and security companies have these as well. Now, uh, Aaron, can you give us some examples of the mental health and wellness support that Sophos provides its own staff and, mm. uh, and any other services that are available more broadly to the industry from other industry players? Yeah, you, you know what? That's, that's a great question, Alex. Thanks for bringing that up. Because, like, we, we have an employee assistance program. We've got the posters. We used to have the posters plastered around everywhere in our, our physical offices. And it was good to know that that mental, you know, psychiatrist, psychologist type of assistance is available. But it wasn't I started sort of digging into it after this report that there is so much available through our own employee assistance program, which when I've gone and asked some other people and other organizations, hey, what do you do around mental health your your your, your employees? And they go, we do this. We've got like meditation apps, we've got apps that allow us to, you know, um, help us with our diet and nutrition. Um, for example, we get, you know, many hours off in a in a in a year to go and volunteer for something that we we want to volunteer for. Um, we've then got access to the mental professionals as well. So there's a whole gamut of things. So, you know, really sort of not looking at mental health as a taboo subject, which some people, some geographies still do, and actually going, asking HR, hey, what can you do to make me feel better? Um, apart from a pat on the back, they're going to provide you a whole cascade of tools, stuff that you can do on your own, self-paced, or with a group of people and and have a have a, a better outcome. Um, you, you mentioned other things that we mentioned with. I mean, I'm, I'm cool to say we're, we're going to be working with CyberMinds, which I understand that you've you've shed, had some time with Peter Coriolanus from CyberMinds before. Um, we're launching something, yeah, um, in the end of the year. I think John Donovan, our MD, has got some details tightly wrapped up around that. But watch this space. But yeah, approaching the mental health, the overload that many of our professionals in our cyber industry are facing, um, we're definitely going to be using that as a conversation starter going forward. 
And clearly, if a company like Sophos is doing this, we'll see other cybersecurity companies, but other companies in general, they're all going to start following this. And really, I mean, cyber, uh, sorry, mental health is no longer taboo. If we've had Australian uh, tennis star Yelena Docking talking about her cyber, her mental uh, health issues in the newspaper on front page news last year during some of the, the uh, tennis uh, matches that were happening. I mean, it's now becoming just an everyday issue and, and, and people are embracing it and really having to deal with it. So that's uh, it's really good to see. Now, let's talk AI. One of the topics that this show is meant to be about. This is a huge threat as cyber criminals exploit yeah. AI to better attack businesses. So what are the risks that AI now uh, enables and entails? Yeah, so artificial intelligence has given way. I mean, computational power as that increases has given way to some pretty awesome technology. But but as awesome as that tech can be, you know, obviously there'll be the individuals that go, hang on, maybe I can bend it to do bad things, right? So the the, the biggest the biggest thing that we saw like over the past, you know, 18 or so months is it, you know, AI has doc democratized um the ability for anybody to pick up a a, a tool and then build something that could do bad things to unsuspecting people, mainly around sort of like the phishing and the scam space, right? It's really opened up the floodgates for those that have got low or no skills in computational sort of like theory to then pick up these tools and then use it to then do something that they normally wouldn't want to do. And maybe it, it's above and beyond the law. So we're seeing a lot of like really convincing passages of text that are used for initial lures in phishing campaigns within emails, telephone scripts that the uh, people overseas are using to then latch on to a potential victim to make their scams a little bit more enticing. And more, most recently, we've seen some pretty radical implementations of deepfake technology being used in near real mm. time to fake a an accountant in a large multinational firm. I heard about that. Yeah. Transfer something like 25 million US dollars over a series of days to a an offshore account because um, they got a, well, a Zoom call from their chief financial officer, which is actually a deep fake video of the person telling them that they should transfer money and follow the instructions coming over this random WhatsApp message they got. And the person said, well, that's my CFO telling me I'm going to do everything that they said. Seven days later, something gets a little bit suspicious. It gets shut down, but not before, you know, 40 million Australian dollars was lost. Crazy. Now, look, after the break, we're going to find out how Sophos is using AI to fight back. But if you love a good documentary, then you'll love our special screenings, Uninterrupted. Cinema, as we're calling it, features some of the world's latest or notable documentaries from the world's best filmmakers. Check out, T check out TNT's website for more information. Weekends are definitely better when you spend it with us on today's News Talk TNT. See you after the break. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Americans love an underdog and nothing makes us happier than a comeback. Perhaps the most moronic thing written in the 20th century was F. Scott Fitzgerald's line that there are no second acts in American lives. Perhaps what he meant to write was there aren't only second acts in American lives because many, myself included, have proven that there are not only second acts but third, fourth, and even fifth acts. We're witnessing a political comeback now, the likes of which we've not seen since Richard M. Nixon in 1968. Donald Trump is on a roll to become president of the United States once again, and perhaps taking as many as 40 states along the way. The UAW in Michigan has supported him, the first Republican they've supported since Ronald Reagan, because they understand that Democrat policies with regards to electric vehicles aren't in their interest. 
Black people are flocking to Trump, Hispanic people, union guys and gals, basically Americans. Sarah Huckabee Sanders had it partially correct when she said this election is between normal and crazy. But really, this election is between Americans and America haters. For MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for today's News Talk TNT. Hi, I'm Abel. I often forget to mention that he's an amputee because Abel will try any activity he can. My arm helps me with basically everything. He doesn't see what he can't do, he sees what he can do. Yeah, this is helping. The War Amps has just given him the ability to do all the activities every kid can do. When you donate to the War Amps, you help kids like me. Thank you! This is Talking Tech with Alex Zaharoff-Royt on today's News Talk TNT. Thank you for joining me. We're with Aaron Bugle, Phil, CTO of Sophos. Now, before the break, we learned how the criminals, cyber criminals, are using AI to uh, become even, you know, better at the bad things they're doing. How, Aaron, is Sophos using AI to fight back? Yeah, we've been using you know, machine learning and decision trees for quite a long time, which is, the, you know, the grandfathers of, of, of AI, really. And mm. we've been in operation almost 40 years now here at Sophos, so we've got a good collection of known bad and known good things right scripts malware phishing campaigns spam messages you name it it's been on the internet we've, we've got it right so we've been using a lot of that corpus of information and a team of data scientists here to train a variety of models i mean the first and foremost model that we released into our products intercept x was to design to detect unknown uh, portable executable payloads and actually do some you know identification of elements and artifacts within those files and whether or not they'd be good or bad and then using a, a, a an approach to sort of like blend in other sort of like telemetry decide to whether what we block them or not we've applied ai to our email gateways as well to ensure that those spear phishing and and whale phishing style of campaigns like we can spot and block those as well and we're going to be rolling out more tech into our web capabilities data loss prevention capabilities into the future who knows where it'll take it take us next now we've heard about a number of the big security disasters over the years hack attacks and leaks and we've seen them in australia but what are some of the big security disasters that you've seen companies subject themselves to you know globally oh it's, it's, it's a tough question to answer you know just the, the stuff that companies subject themselves to i think i think very recently the last couple of years we've seen a real big focus and organizations get a little bit too caught up in the new shiny things mm. and, and sort of race to sort of keep up with the pace of which the industry has been evolving at and sometimes that can mean that they forget about some of the basics so unfortunately time and time again when our own incident response services and our rapid response services for non-customers people call in asking for assistance to, to get out of a, a jam because they've noticed ransomware on the systems or whatnot when we do a bit of a root cause analysis we always find out you know what it was an unpatched system at the gateway or an rdp system that was left exposed to the world a remote desktop protocol enabled system that somebody was able to just simply log into or you know weaponize a public exploit that had a patch available for it for ages and walk on in like they own the place so it's those basic inventory risk um, managing and mitigating sort of functions that people sort of like are just a little bit overlooking just assuming that they're happening and that's causing a raft of little tiny issues to spiral into big breaches 
And so what disasters have you been able to prevent over the years? Heaps, heaps and heaps and heaps. I mean, we, we've been able to, to prevent many of the unknown pieces of ransomware and block them before they were even known to the industry with some of the technologies that we have in existence on our endpoint, namely our, our crypto guard capabilities. But a lot of the time with our incident responders or our managed threat detection response team providing our managed detection response services, they're the ones that have got the eagle eyes that can see those tiny little discrepancies happening at the front door where somebody's poking around trying to get in. And if they do happen to get in through either the front door or somebody has let them in through the internal side of the network, then they're the team that can actually see this, hunt them down, contain them, neutralize them and kick them off the network. So we've helped, we've helped some pretty big organizations and I'm going to keep them nameless for obvious reasons. But yeah, we've, we've, we've done some really good things for a lot of our customers and, and prevented them from drifting into disaster because of small little things that have been unfortunately missed. Now, we've heard the term chief technology officer, but you're a field chief technology officer. So what is the distinction and what is uh, you know, a typical day in the life uh, for you? Yeah, Joe Levy, our, our CTO over in, over in the States, has deputized a handful of us to be field-based CTOs. And given that I'm based down here in, in Victoria, Australia, I've taken on the mantle of our, our Australia, Pacific and Japan region. So all the way from India over across to Japan and down to New Zealand and back around through all those regions in between, I simply just look after from, uh, you know, what is Sophos doing? What can we do better? You know, feedback from our customers, you know, doing things like these as well. So what does a day look like? It can be very dynamic, you know, from mowing the lawns this morning to talking to you at night about, you know, pressing cybersecurity issues, but really conducting that thought leadership type, type of discussion and just enumerating where problems might exist to help, you know, what can Sophos do to remediate them, if any? Oh, I think we're... Oh, yeah. No, sorry. I wasn't sure if we dropped out there. I didn't think so. <laughs> so how do you see the cybersecurity landscape evolving over the next couple of years? Oh, if I had a crystal ball, Alex, you know, I'd be a, a very powerful person. But I think, <laughs> I, I think you know, the, the, next, the next few years, we'll see a lot more of the same. I think, you know, a lot of it will be around, you know, how will AI and new technologies that come along stuff that a lot of us were blindsided about, you know, with, with open AI and chat GPT, it was like, whoa, where this comes yeah. from. Although yeah. it had been bubbling around in the background for a while, but people are adopting it to do stuff. So are the criminals, right? So I just yeah. think any new technology that comes along, super cool. I love innovation, but at the same time, you know, what risk can this pose to the organization? I think when new tech comes along and, and open AI is a good example, is how can we as an organization embrace that technology and either, you know, sanction it and bless it for being used or regulate it correctly to ensure that our employees don't use it in the wrong way, like uploading personal information or having it deployed somewhere where it necessarily shouldn't be deployed. So being very open-minded to changes in the future, I think that's going to be a really important thing for organizations to be mindful of and just not head in the sand and think it's going to go away, but really understand how can we corral people to do the right thing with it so it doesn't come back and bite us on the backside. Critically, now we're running, yeah, sorry, go on. Go on. I'm just going to say critical infrastructure is a big thing. Um, yeah. So anybody who runs critical infrastructure, you're being watched. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we're running very short on time, but I always like to find out, and I haven't had the chance to ask this question, but what is a memory of your first personal computer? Yeah, it's interesting. Like my dad was in the IT industry. I mean, he had his own, you know, X80 or AT in the in the um, in the study, which green screen, big keyboard. I could never touch it because it was a work machine. First PC that I had that I could call my own was over my shoulder, my Commodore sixty four. It needs Last a bit from of the DLC. Past. But yeah. Um, yeah, I I 
bashing out basic programs back in the olden days, loading games through tapes and just having a good old time on the only TV in the house, which caused some contention with my sisters. But yeah, I love that thing. And I just love technology full stop. Well, Aaron Bugle, the field CTO of Sophos Australia and New Zealand, it's been uh, wonderful to hear what you've been working on, the fact that this mental health and wellness is now a really big focus for you and for your customers. It's uh, something that is, you know, everyone has to take really seriously because it's just a huge problem. So thank you again for your time. Thank you, Alex and everybody. Strike up a conversation around mental health. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Well, this has been Talking Tech with Alex Zahara-Royd. I'll be back with Chris Smith next Wednesday. See you next week. Bye-bye.